We'll do our best. We'll do our best. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 145 is entitled, A Song of Praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Yahweh is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. So we come to our final sola of the Reformation. Uh, A sola that some, uh, it's been interesting as I've been preparing this and looking at these various solas, uh, it's interesting, uh, different uh, commentators, different theologians will say, well, this one's the center of everything, and this one's the center of everything, and this one's the center of everything. And a lot of people say, this one's the center of everything. And in a way, uh, I almost think that uh, I, I would lean towards saying that this is the culmination of, of all that we've talked about, because really this is what all the other solas, Scripture, grace, faith, Christ, all point to exalting our Lord and King. There are a lot of things in religion that have a semblance of glory, a semblance of splendor, a semblance of of greatness. And indeed, during the time of the Reformation, uh, that was one of the issues, the whole worship discussion that was there. Do you worship the saints? Do you worship the relics? Do you worship the icons? Do you worship... Uh, do you have to have certain things in the church? Do you have to have all the trappings and the robes and the candles and the incense and everything else? You know, it's not that in many of those things, some of those things I think there's intrinsic problems with, but in many of them, you know, a candle's a candle. You know, 
A robe is a robe. A robe's very hot. But, you know, their trappings, their external things, and they might even have some purpose in, in, in having an idea or a thought about the Lord stick in our mind in a particular way that maybe it's helpful. Well, all of that, there's a kind of glory that those can have. Things that we can see value in and uh, see something to appreciate. But the problem is, is that so many things that are presented as aids to worship during that time were actually hindrances to worship. They obscured the one true God from the view of believers. And in fact, some of them were designed specifically to obscure, specifically to put distance between God and his followers. Even to the point of ascribing to God glories that he doesn't claim. That can happen. Think of, I, I think of one, one that uh, the world often thinks of as a glory of God that isn't actually true and that he... Uh, well, actually, he just he loves us so much because he's love. He just ignores our sins. Um, he, he lets us get away with it, or he intends to save everyone, as in every single person. Universal salvation. Those things aren't there. Those those are man is making up glories for God, and God doesn't need any help. Sometimes man denies that God possesses certain glories that conflict with our presuppositions, particularly when it comes to the decisions that he makes regarding his children and the affairs of men. But let's think about this word glory. We're talking about soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. The word glory means something that is heavy or weighty. It's at, at its root. Referring to God, it speaks of his quality. It speaks of his perfections. It speaks of his relative importance in his creation. Which means to say, because he is the almighty, infinite God, his glories are infinite. His glories know no bounds. And as weighty and as glorious as the creation, which, which declares his glories, as, as wonderful as the creation is, He is weightier than all. He is more glorious than all. And we should labor hard in our worship, in our study, in our fellowship with him to not seek to, to not obscure his glories, but to exalt them. We place much importance on the things of this life. We place a lot of importance on our own power or the power of other creatures. But in comparison to the creator, Our weight is lighter than a feather. Uh, In an article uh, uh, in the Reformed Forum, a a brother named Ruben Zartman made this comment in thinking about how this sola, this this, uh, statement regarding God's glory, relates to the others. Excellent, excellent uh, summation. He said, The Reformation solas persistently put mankind in his place. We have no knowledge of God apart from his self-revelation. We have no ability to earn our salvation, but but Christ must do all for us and in our place. We have no basis on which to claim any of the benefits of Christ's work except for God's unfettered kindness, that's grace. 
Even when we come to receive Christ freely offered in the gospel, we give nothing in exchange. In this connection, faith is a strictly receptive faculty. Thus, the first four solas highlight the radical poverty of created and fallen man before the creating and redeeming God. David uh, Van Drunen, in an article um, on, uh, called The Five Solas, Soli Deo Gloria, made this statement. The heart of the Christian message, in other words, is God himself. And that is why, brothers and sisters, as glorious as other things might be to our finite eyes, you and I must glorify our God alone in everything. Now, when we take our text here in Psalm 145, I'm going to move through this rather quickly. Okay? But I hope uh, I will not uh, do an injustice uh, to the text in doing so. To glorify him, to exalt him, uh, takes on, if we're going to do that, we, we need to know what we're glorifying. We need to know in, in what, what particularly about him is so marvelous, that, is, that he is so weighty and worthy of our praise. And this psalm is just a glorious description of the perfections of our God. First of all, verses 1 through 3, we, you and I must glorify his name. You need to glorify his name. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will praise your name forever and ever. And then the name is declared, great is Yahweh, the I am. Greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. In these three verses, we see some things about the name, which is really summarizing God's character and being, all that he is, the great faithful I am, who always is, always was, always will be faithful. His name is eternal. It will not pass away. He's not like so many gods of the nations that come and go with those nations, forgotten in the dusts of time. But the God who created all things, the one true and living God, is eternal. And his name is great. And the, the emphasis upon greatness in these three opening verses here is important. The word greatness here, uh, it's, it's a kind of a cool word in, in, its, in its root understanding. And it speaks of a growing up or coming to full strength or importance. And ultimately then, the, by extension, it speaks of the honor of God. We can talk about different things being great. And it's a word that we overuse. Uh, oh, that's great. That's great. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. It's great. And we wonder what greatness means. Uh, it gets applied to railways. It gets applied to presbyteries. It gets names because we're the great Western Presbytery um, here uh, in this area. Uh, we, we use that word great a lot. But it speaks of maturity. It speaks of honor. It speaks of importance and weight. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. He is, he is of, and I'm, I speak as a fool. He is in full maturity. I mean, he always was. But he's not a God that has to improve. He's complete. And nothing else in the world is that way. Nothing else in the universe is that way. And so in Isaiah 42, 
Yahweh himself says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will not suffer competition. He is a great God. We need to glorify that great, eternal, uh, enduring name. And this, this greatness of his shows itself forth in his splendor. And that's the focus in verses four through six. So we glorify, go, to glorify his splendor is something that we do as well. The word splendor has the idea of being an ornament. It also speaks to honor um, and, and, and renown. How is the Lord ornamented? How is, you know, uh, it, I was, uh, saw a picture some time ago this, this was almost a, a picture of the absurd. It was a picture of North Korean generals. Anybody ever see that picture? They were all lined up um, in a group. I don't remember what the occasion was. They were all in full dress uniforms. And uh, they looked like um, they'd all gone crazy in a Boy Scouts meeting and put every single badge that could possibly be put on every square inch of fabric on their... I, I literally... From shoulder to waist, both sides, metals everywhere. So I don't even know how they stood upright. They had so much, so much bling on them. And, you know, man is that way. They wanna, we want to show off. We want to do these things. We've got, there's always going to be room for another metal we're going to find. The fact of the matter is, is that the Lord is fully metaled up. He needs no further ornamentation. There's nothing that we can add to his glory. There's not another award or not another recognition that we can bestow upon him. He has revealed himself in his fullness, completeness, in his splendor. Splendor in his power. He is splendid in his majesty. We see that there in verses 4 through 6. The glorious splendor of your majesty. The splendor of his greatness is mentioned there again. I love uh, what uh, Peter re, uh, calls to mind in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Speaking of that transfiguration time. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter, you remember at that time of transfiguration was so uh, astounded by the, the splendor and the majesty of what he saw. He just sort of started rambling on some nonsense about building some tents for everybody. But because he didn't know what else to say, he was just dumbfounded at, at what he was witnessing in the power and majesty of God. And yet what, what Peter and the other disciples saw there on the Mount of Transfiguration doesn't begin to touch the magnitude of God's infinite glory. They got a taste of it. And he refers to it as majestic glory. So glorify his splendor, glorify his majesty, glorify the evidence of his power and his wonders and his might and his wisdom. 
because he is uh, full of awesome deeds, you and I must declare his greatness. That is how we bring glory to him. And then in verses 7 through 9, we glorify his goodness. His goodness. There's a lot here that we see about his goodness. I'm going to go through them quickly. But as we read these verses, we notice that that his goodness is abundant. It speaks of his fame. Everywhere you look, the, the word fame has the idea of a remembrance or memorial. Everywhere you look in this creation both in the physical creation and even in the affairs of men, such as they are, we still see evidence of the goodness of God in His abundance. In effect, mankind, fallen mankind, tries they might. You know how they, the, the wicked and the foolish tear down monuments because they think somehow that's going to change history. People try to tear down monuments about God. Some literal some just, we want to ignore it. Some we want to trash the world we live in, make it our own, after our own image rather than God's. But the fact of the matter is, is that God's memorials are enduring. They can't be undone. And the heavens do declare His glories. His wonders are seen in His creation everywhere. And no one is without, can, be, uh, can have an excuse to reject God. Because his remembrances are everywhere. His fame is everywhere. His goodness is righteous. I love this. And it seems like that might be redundant. But just keep in mind that there we, we talk about things of being good to each other and sometimes we're, we mean cutting each other some slack. God doesn't cut us slack. Our sins were paid for by Jesus Christ. There's no slack involved. God's goodness is according to the standards of righteousness, his own character, and he will be true to that. And his goodness is in accord with his character. Praise God. It's not arbitrary. It's not at a whim. It's not a fickle. And in fact, um, notice uh, the next, he speaks of his grace and mercy. I've summed this up in a word that might surprise you a little bit. Uh, but uh, bear with me on it, that his goodness is condescending. I don't mean that in a, in a demeaning sense, that we have, kind of has that, but in the sense of he's the, he's the mighty one, he's the great one, we're the fallen ones, and he condescends to us. He doesn't have to do anything for us except judge us. But he gives us grace and mercy, and that's good. And his goodness is patient. He's slow to anger. Aren't you glad that he is? Yeah. His goodness is constant. He abounds in steadfast love. That constant, steadfast love uh, translates one Hebrew word, the word chesed. We've talked about that before in this congregation many times. It speaks of God's covenant loyalty. It's the very essence of his being and character. His utter faithfulness to himself and to his promises. And that, so, therefore, he is constant. As, uh, as uh, we read in Exodus 34, when Yahweh passed before Moses, remember that? Moses wanted to see his glory. And God put him in a cleft of a rock and passed before him and said, put his, basically put his hand over him so he couldn't look upon him. 
But he proclaimed these words. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Same word. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is our constant faithful God. And this goodness of his, if you look at there in verse nine, is broad. He's good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. There's a caveat in this psalm. Verse 20 speaks of his judgment upon those that are in rebellion against him. But yet at the same time, even in that judgment, there is goodness. Because God, again, is not just arbitrary. Well, I'm just, he, he meets out punishment in accordance fairly, uh, in accordance with the, the deeds done. Justice is uh, an expression of goodness, in other words. And then we glorify also, besides his name, besides his goodness, besides his supreme and splendid majesty, we glorify his kingdom, his rule, the things that he does in our lives. Verses 10 through 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. His kingdom is powerful. See that there, verse 11. They will tell of your power. His kingdom is honorable. It's worth making known to succeeding generations what God has done because what he has done in creation and in the affairs of men is honorable. It brings honor to him and it honors those whom, upon whom he has placed his love. And this kingdom, like his name, uh, no surprise here, is described as being eternal as um, this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom verse 13 and your dominion endures throughout all generations we have uh, many occasions do we not in our present day not to not to glory in the government that is over us because of the fallenness of those who inhabit the office but with god we may all we, we may always without fear of shame glorify his perfect, everlasting, powerful kingdom. And his alone. Not the church's power and authority, which it has some delegated by him. Not that even of, of parents or bosses or government officials or anything else. Uh, all of those things have glories within their own sphere. But only God's is eternal, everlasting, unchangeable, and perfect. Glorify him in his rule over you and rejoice in it. And finally, this psalm speaks of, uh, it's already been talking numerous times about the various works of God, the mighty acts of God, the awesome deeds of God. And here in verses 13 to the end of the psalm, you see, various aspects of God's providence in the life of his people in what these works consist of, what he does. Um, it begins with revelation. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. That is also repeated in verse 17. Um, the, uh, the, the, the providential words of God, as David would say in Psalm 119 and verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light 
Let us glorify God for his revelation to us of his holy word. He could have been silent. He could have insisted we uh, make, uh, as it were, bricks without straw, theologically speaking. But he's not an evil taskmaster. He gave us his word. He gave us instruction and he gave us um, a revelation of himself so that we would know who we're glorifying. Glorify him for his word. Glorify him for his support. He upholds all, verse 14, who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. I could have said comfort here. Um, Support works coming alongside and holding us up when we are in times of affliction and challenge and difficulty. When things look hopeless, our God is there. He strengthens our feeble needs, strengthens our hands to do those things that he calls us to do. He doesn't just say, go out and do it, child of mine. He says, go do it and I will be with you always. He is the one who upholds us in the midst of every challenge. In verses 15 and 16, beautiful pictures. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. I love this. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. This speaks to the, the, the goodness and the providence of God's supply. It is free. It is open. It is generous. He's no, our God is no miser. He attends to our needs. And whether we are rich by the world's standards or not, our God supplies all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. This is his wonderful providence. And it's his kindness, the providence, uh, his kind providence is also revisited there in verse 17. Kind in all his works speaks to his, his thoughtfulness, his care, his love for us. Glorify him for that kindness. In verse 18, there's a, another providence there, and that is his presence. The Lord is near. Yahweh is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Uh, in the theological workbook of the Old Testament, uh, this comment on this verse I thought was particularly good. It is not merely God's reputation which fills the earth, the writer said, but it is the very reality of his presence. Nowhere is the reality and the splendor of his presence and his character seen as in his son, Isaiah 4, 2, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth, John 1, 14, and also John 17 speaks to that as well. Through him and through his presence in the church, God's glory is indeed filling the earth. Our Lord is present. And he was present in the past and he is present now through his son, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Glorify him for that providence. Glorify him also for the providence of his deliverance through the Lord Jesus. Verse 19 speaks of fulfilling the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. How does the Lord deliver us? Certainly there are aspects of our physical lives and so on where we we experience his protection and and all that and we are delivered from harm in ways that are pretty remarkable. If we went around this sanctuary, I'm sure we'd have many stories of 
the, of testimony of how the Lord has preserved us through times of, 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 of danger and, and harm. But there's another aspect of this deliverance, isn't there? Not just our physical bodies, but he saves, our, he saves all of us, um, all of our being, our body and our souls. And uh, he is, that's why he's termed our Savior. We read in Isaiah 45, uh, God is again speaking. He says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He is truly our only Savior. Uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, in an article on this particular sola, made this very insightful comment, I thought. We've talked about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Pelagianism, uh, the basic idea that man's good enough to save himself. Semi-Pelagians would believe that uh, um, man is sinful and fallen, but still has enough ability on his own to exercise faith so that God would receive us. It's kind of a halfway point. He makes this comment, semi-Pelagians hold to the idea that in their fallen condition of spiritual death, they exercise faith and then are born again. In their view, they respond to the gospel before the spirit has changed the disposition of their soul to bring them to faith. When that happens, the glory of God is shared. No semi-Pelagian can ever say with authenticity, to God alone be the glory. That comment hits you between the eyes. God doesn't share his glory. Not with carved idols and not with our hearts. He is the one who saves us. He is the only Savior. He preserves us providentially. Verse 20, preserves all who love him. And we've kind of already spoken of things that speak to the way that he meets our needs. The way that he... Uh, knows our hurts and our, our cares. He preserves us and will preserve us until the day of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he will preserve us for eternity as uh, he enables the saints to persevere to the end. And also in verse 20, there's another providence for which we should glorify him. Not only the preservation of the saints, but the judgment of the wicked. Why should we glorify him for that providence? Which sounds harsh, well, it's because he is the just and holy God, and if he did not judge wickedness, he would not be the God he says he is, and we would have really no salvation. That's why it says in Exodus 34, again, you shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He will, again, not brook any competition. Truly, there is no God like our God. Not in reputation, not in splendor, not in goodness or authority or in providential care. Glorify Him alone. Say with Paul, Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To close, I'll cite Brother Zartman again from his article. 
The last solar, he says, reminds us of where we stand. We are not the center of the universe. God is. The sovereign covenant Lord tells us, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. Even in salvation, we are not central. God will be glorified, and God will be glorified in the salvation of sinners who can contribute nothing to their own salvation. In this way, it is no hindrance to our happiness. Uh, It is no hindrance to our happiness that it is less important than God's glory. In other words, our, our, even our salvation is less important, is what he's saying. In fact, it's no small part of our joy and comfort to sing with ancient Israel, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Thank you, Father that you are truly glorious. Jesus reminded us in his model prayer that we are to begin our communing with you with praise. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, let let your name, your splendor, your goodness, your kingdom, your providence, all be glorified by us. Father, let us not look for any glories of our own. Let us not seek for spiritual medals, but rather let us look ahead to what we're told in the book of Revelation and take this attitude that we take whatever crowns we might have and we cast them at your feet, for you truly are the summation of all that is good, great, glorious, and splendid. To you alone be glory.